0: Jesus in a postmodern age. Um, we're primarily going to be working off of this handout here. Okay, the with the title on there. The recommended reading is just for you. If, if you don't know a whole bunch about Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, or the, the Christian worldview, how to teach the Christian worldview, these books can help. And some of the books that are listed here are are my books that we have over there that you can just pick up for free. The packet that says the Jesus Seminar, we'll talk a little bit about the Jesus Seminar. We'll talk about the Da Vinci Code today. You've got like three or four pages of notes there. But uh, but this is mainly for you, this handout, so that you could do some follow-up. If you can make heads or tails out of my notes, more power to you because sometimes I can't. But but the page you're going to want to turn to on this is where it says evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and there's 12 points listed, and evidence for Christ's deity, and there's 10 points uh, listed there. We will be referring to that a little bit later in this discussion. Basically, you want to hold it to that page, and then go to the page that says defending the historical Jesus in a postmodern age. Now, before I get started, I have to explain what postmodernism is, Entire books have been written arguing that you can't even define postmodernism. It's because it's it's more of a reaction against modernism than it is a worldview in itself. Modernism basically was a, almost a total blind faith in human reason. We thought that through human reason we were going to find all truth and solve all mankind's problems through human technology. Well, the modern project failed so horribly that it led to a reaction against modernism, which is called postmodernism. It says on your your handouts there, postmodernism as a philosophical system of thought denies absolute truth. So what's true for me is not necessarily true for you and vice versa. Denies absolute morality. And denies objective history. In, in, in fact, language really doesn't represent any any truth. All languages, is, is human language, is just a power game. It's a way to force your views down other people's throats. The reason why it's called postmodernism, by the way, it sounds a lot like existentialism, where the in, that those are individuals who give up on absolute truth, they give up on God, they give up on absolute morality, and they give up on meaning in life. But then they say that we need to take a, the individual needs to take a leap of blind faith by their own will and actualize themselves create meaning for their lives okay well everything is gone from modernism in existentialism except for the individual the individual is still left no reason no truth no morality but the individual is still left in postmodernism not only does reason die but the individual dies too, and so the individual is just a product of their own community. So the individual is, is shaped by their community, and they proclaim the narrative, the story of their community. So you know, when, when absolute truth is thrown out the window, all you got left are stories. You know, I love I love when postmodernists debate me in a dialogue with me. I just let them talk for like 20 minutes, and then I just stop them because you know they're telling me that I'm not supposed to use. Propositional truth and argue for the truth of my worldview or whatever. But I just let him ramble on for 20 minutes, and then I just start telling him, I said, "Come on, man, tell me a story. I haven't heard a story for 20 minutes. You've been arguing like a modernist. So people can throw out reason, but they're humans. We have to reason. Okay, we have to think as if what Francis Schaeffer called antithesis is real." We have to think as if there is such a thing as truth, and, and anything that contradicts the truth is false. So, you know, I was talking to a philosophy class of uh, uh, postmodernist young kids at the University of Washington, and one one told me I was trying to get my point across. Them it was like talking to a, a different race of beings, people from another planet. They just could not understand what I was talking about. Finally, one of them said, "Oh, you're saying..." that if my view is true, my denial of absolute truth, uh, there's no way for me to communicate consistently with that. And I told him, I said, well, that's true, but that's not what I'm saying. Well, I'm saying it's worse than that. If postmodernism is true, you can't even think consistently with that worldview. Because if you have a thought, this is a nice room, then the statement, this is not a nice room, you view as false. So just to think something automatically entails that you're denying what would contradict that statement. So we have to think in terms of, of antithesis. Now let me say this. Most Americans are not postmodernist. Got, we have entire churches that are trying to reshape the gospel message so that we could reach postmodernists. And postmodernism, I, I think it's kind of a halfway house between modernism and uh, neo-paganism, to be honest with you, I think they're gonna, I think people are gonna, there's gonna be, become some form uh, under the heading of the new tolerance, some type of new religion, a neo-pagan religion that will uh, be more than just a reaction against another worldview. So I don't think we should change our churches or the message. We never change the, me- the message, but if we're dealing with a postmodernist, we might want to be careful to take note of that you know one thing we might want to do is modernist with the modernist maybe the four gospel truths may have appealed to them it sounded so scientific but see now it's no big deal to get a PhD in philosophy or, or science now everybody wants to get a PhD in literature see everything's about creativity and beauty and feelings they've thrown reason out the window so now maybe we ought to, we ought to remind ourselves that the gospel message, although it is true, it is also the greatest story ever told. That there is so much beauty in the gospel message. Now the postmodernist needs to realize it is the quote-unquote meta-narrative, the true story, the story that is true for all people at all times and all places. Maybe we need to, to remind ourselves a little bit about the beauty of the gospel message. Most people, when I call this a postmodern age, I'm not saying that most people are postmodernists. But what I'm saying is that most people, especially in American culture, especially in Western civilization, have been influenced by postmodern thought. I I would even think that probably everybody in this room has been influenced in one way or another by postmodern thought. If you're like me and and you're just about to share your faith with a stranger and then you get a little intimidated by it, well, that's probably because of of postmodernism just the idea that we we're, we're, it's, it's, it's drilled into our heads that that's intolerant to act like you have the truth and that other person doesn't. So the new tolerance is one of the children of postmodernism. The new morality, one of the babies of postmodernism. And political correctness. It can get ugly. Political correctness, like when, when President Bill Clinton, anytime somebody disagreed with his policy, what did he do? Did he rationally defend his policy? Like a good modernist would do. No, he immediately attacked the person who disagreed with them, and it's because you know it's like J.P. Moreland out of uh, Talbot School of Theology. Like J.P. Moreland says, once rational argumentation is thrown out the window, all that's left is shouting, and that's what we have now. Now it's just just master the sound bites. You get a presidential candidate who can convince you that he feels your pain and he sheds a tear while saying it. then uh, then we're just going to give him a free pass. And if he starts breaking laws and being immoral and this and that, that's okay because he could respond by saying, well, it depends how you define the word is. That's a total postmodern response. And so, uh, but whatever the case, keep in mind, so what I'm talking about here is not so much postmodernism as a philosophy, but the fact that we've been influenced and even intimidated by postmodern philosophy so that it's influenced us in, in many ways. And because of this, we have kind of a watered down view of history. We question whether anybody can really understand history. We're told by the postmodernists that whoever wins the wars, they write history. So it's always the intolerant people in positions of power that want to oppress the poor. And so, you know, the guys who won this big battle called Christianity, yeah, they made Jesus God, but he really wasn't God. And so we end up creating a Jesus in one's own image, actually in the image of your community. So the, the gay rights community, they have their own gay theology, where Jesus is the greatest homosexual activist who ever lived. Marxist, communists have their own liberation theology, where Jesus is the greatest Marxist revolutionary who ever lived. They usually draw him like this with his arms stretched out. Instead of being on a cross, he's usually holding an AK-47. Nicaragua was a, uh, an example of that with the, uh, the Sandinistas. In feminist theology, Jesus becomes the, the, the greatest woman's right activist of all time. With black theology, uh, Jesus becomes the guy who stands up for the rights of the minorities. And, you know, some of these have an element of truth. You know, Jesus cared about about the outcast. He cared about the poor and things of that sort. But the fact of the matter is the main reason why Jesus came to earth was because he was God become a man, to die on the cross for our sins and provide salvation for us. Now, the crazy thing is, if you say what I just said, on most secular college campuses today, you'll be considered intolerant, outdated, and a buffoon. Yet, if you hold to gay theology, liberation theology, wow, what a brilliant person you are. Boy, you're that's some cutting-edge thoughts. Like, what are you talking about, cutting-edge thought? And But that's what postmodernism does it lowers the bar when it comes to uh, you know in other words history you don't decide what you believe about history based on the facts and the evidence you decide what you believe about history based upon the goals of your community and your community's narrative and if it serves your community to turn Jesus into a gay activist then so be it when you deny absolute truth what's the difference between the traditional view of Jesus and somebody else's view of Jesus It's all up for grabs. So whoever can get their narrative, their story, whatever community can get their narrative and cram it down people's throats to the point where it becomes the dominant narrative, they win. Because that's all language is about, is power. They talk about power, poets. Because we live in a postmodern society, how do you win presidential debates? You master the soundbite. It's even beyond the 20-second soundbite. Things have gotten so bad in this country that if you just control the labels, you win the debate. You don't, even have to have, you don't even have to have a soundbite or an even a complete sentence. All you have to do is control the titles. So CNN, pro-lifers, are not pro-lifers, they're anti-abortionists. Because Americans don't like anti, and they don't like the word abortion. You take You take a fair poll, most Americans don't like the word abortion. And the pro-abortionists, they're not pro-abortionists according to CNN, they're pro-choice. Well, what American would be opposed to choice? So we have been so, so dumbed down and have so little respect for reason and truth that now if you control the labels, you win. Our public education system, I'm glad there's some Christians that are are teaching there. There are some Christian students that are still doing well there. But as a general statement, it's the perfect setup. there's, There's so much distaste for truth. It's the perfect setup to train the next generation of slaves, is what it amounts to. We just indoctrinate people in political correctness, which is why, you know, all this talk about is we need to take religion out of the public schools. The founding Fathers would not even be able to figure out what, what in the world we're talking about if they heard that. Because Founding Fathers, in their view, the government has no business in the schools. If you told the Founding Fathers, told Ben Franklin, we need to take religion out of the schools, he said, what are you talking about? religious people are the only people who start schools. You know, you get a community of Christians, they're going to want to start a school, they're going to build a schoolhouse, they're going to get a Christian teacher to teach there. One of the primary textbook is going to be a Bible. Now, if the Founding Fathers knew about Buddhists coming to America, they would say, well, if it's a Buddhist community, they're probably going to build a Buddhist school, and teach Buddhism. So the idea, the, the Founding Fathers, as they were concerned, the government had no say. A, education isn't mentioned in the Constitution. Tenth Amendment said any, says any powers not given to the federal government automatically fall back to the states and the people respectively. This is an organization in California separation of uh, school and state. And that's where the issue really should be. Founding fathers knew they didn't want the government getting involved in education because then instead of education it becomes indoctrination and in political correctness. You indoctrinate the children in such a way that it helps keep you in power, which is why Marx and Engels, Communist Manifesto, they call for public, state-run education. Plato, in Plato's Republic, he calls for state-run education. After six years of school, and the state determines, state raises the kids, state-run orphanages, not the parents, and then after six years of education, the state determines, okay, you're going to be, uh, you got a, you got a strong back, you're going to be, uh, uh, you're going to be in the Olympic games. You have a, a real bright mind. We're going to give you another 10 years of school, and you're going to be a philosopher and a politician. You you work good with your hands. We're going to make you a, a laborer. The state decides. So the founding fathers were totally opposed to that. Their, their view was much closer to Jesus, which is basically you go to the the parents are responsible to educate their children, and if they need help, they go to their rabbi. And that's why Christian education is so important today. So there's this low view about historical fact, historical evidence. So you get a guy who comes on a scene, Dan Brown, writes his, his novel, The Da Vinci Code, sells over 20 million copies. May 19th, it's going to be a movie starring Tom Hanks. So then even the non-reading populace is going to go wild for this. And the Jesus, of Dan, and by the way, there are, there are no historical scholars... That would agree with Dan Brown's. I mean, the Jesus seminar, they are as far left as New Testament scholars can possibly get. And they even write articles refuting Dan Brown's fairy tale Da Vinci Code. Now, the guy's writing a novel. There's no, you know, he wants to write a novel, write a novel. But on the first page, don't write facts and then tell everybody that all the historical documents and the historical data that formed the background to this novel are accurate and true. I mean, no, those are not facts. And here you have the cross of Christ. Here you got Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code. He says that the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., Jesus was made God. Before that, he was considered merely human by the church. And he throws in a few things. Jesus was secretly married to Mary Magdalene, which is baloney, because then she would be Mary, uh, wife of Jesus. She wouldn't be Mary Magdalene. You wouldn't name a, a married lady after her town. They didn't do that back then. but by the way, we don't even know that Mary Magdalene was young. everybody even, even Mel Gibson is as, as, as good as he he, he did uh, with his uh, the passion movie Thanks. even he has Mary Magdalene a young lady. We don't know that she was young. all we know is she was possessed by seven demons. Jesus cast them out and she was wealthy. maybe maybe her father had died and left her with a fortune or whatever. She was one of the ladies that supported his ministry and she hung out with old ladies out with Jesus' mom with uh, the the mother of of, uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee so for all we know this lady was in her 60s or 70s the whole idea that Mary Magdalene was a a prostitute who came to Christ no evidence whatsoever I think think Pope Gregory the Great in the 5th or 6th century AD uh, preached a message where he confused Mary, one of the sisters of Lazarus when she anointed Jesus' feet with Mary Magdalene and with the the prostitute who anointed Jesus' feet in the house of the Pharisee. And he confused them all, and from then on, people have been thinking that Mary Magdalene was this uh, young, attractive lady who had formerly been a prostitute. No evidence for that whatsoever. Well, the Jesus Seminar across the say about 30 A.D., the Jesus Seminar has already written articles as far left as you can get among New Testament scholars fortunately there are 9 out of 10 guys that get interviewed on the major networks when they do a program on Jesus during Christmas or Easter to make Christians feel good they bring on the Jesus Seminar to slam us and to slam our faith and to say yeah most of what's in the Bible Jesus, Jesus really didn't say so the Jesus Seminar they say no Jesus was universally accepted by the church to be God at 180... However, and I challenged Mark. someone told me he passed away, I hope he didn't, but, uh, but Marcus Borg, I challenged him to a debate, Campus Crusade for Christ set it up for Oregon State University, but he just decided, he didn't say yes, he didn't say no, he just didn't show, but Marcus Borg, if I got to corner him on that, not only would he admit that the church universally considered Jesus God in, in, in uh, 100 AD, but I could get them to admit, because they admit it in their writings, they don't like to shout it from the rooftops, that the apostle Paul was already teaching when he started writing around fifty AD, even the Jesus seminar accepts most of Paul's writings as authentic and as written by Paul, that by fifty A.D. Paul was teaching that Jesus is God. But then I could twist the member of the Jesus seminar's arm a little bit more, and I could say, you know what though, come on, let's let's play fair here, because you don't want to call Paul a liar. Nobody does. The guy was sincere enough about his faith to be battered for his faith and then eventually decapitated. You don't want to call him a liar. He says in Galatians that in the 30s A.D., somewhere between 33 and 37 A.D., he met with the uh, leaders of the Jerusalem church, He and Barnabas, just to make sure he got his gospel from Jesus, not from them. He got his apostleship from Jesus, not from them, says Paul. And then he met with Peter... James and John the pillars of the Jerusalem church 33 and 37 AD they compared notes and found out they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas because they were preaching the same gospel so I mean if you really push them Paul's not an innovator they always like to talk about Paul's an innovator if Paul's an innovator and he's teaching a new gospel and he turns Jesus into a god then he's a liar because he said he's preaching the same thing Peter, James and John said uh a really good guy to go to, and I don't know if you like reading 600-page books, Larry Hurtado, University of Edinburgh. He wrote The Lord Jesus Christ, 600-page book, where he argues that if, if Paul says anything that there's any disagreement with him on it throughout the Christian church, he will argue his point. That Paul will argue, you know, if you say, hey, it's nice morning, isn't it? If you Paul doesn't think it's a nice morning, he's going to tell you, no, it's not. What, do you want to debate me or something? Paul liked to argue. Yet Paul never argues for Jesus' deity. He only mentions it in passing, right from his earliest writings, about 49 or 50 A.D. Some would say Galatians, some would say First Thessalonians. So Larry Hurtado's saying, therefore, there was no dispute about it. Paul wasn't saying anything new. If you were a Christian, you automatically believed Jesus was God. And so Larry Hurtado says, you go back to the ancient creeds found in the New Testament, you go back to the ancient writings, And what you find is that uh, Peter, James, and John taught the same thing. So he says that the the, the teaching that Jesus is God, he calls it binitarian worship. Now, obviously, we believe in Trinitarian worship, God is three persons. we worship the three persons of the Trinity. But what he's saying is it took the church a while to figure out the Holy Spirit. They mentioned him on the same level as the Father and the Son. But it took a while to spell it out in the creeds. But if you want to find out when did they worship Jesus alongside the Father, Venetarian worship, when did they worship both the, the Father and the Son? He says it goes back to the oldest, most ancient creeds. Some of these creeds are found in the New Testament. Paul will quote num- numerous creeds. Um, but he says it goes back to the early 30s A.D. What Larry Hurtado is basically saying, from the University of Edinburgh, he's one of the world's leading New Testament scholars, he's saying the teaching that Jesus is God goes right back to the time of Christ's crucifixion. It goes back to the earliest stages of Christianity. And then that's probably why Marcus Borg he had debated William Lane Craig about a year before he was supposed to debate me, and it's probably why he probably doesn't debate anybody anymore. Usually if you debate William Lane Craig, you just hang it up after that. But but, but you can take the Jesus seminar, and all of a sudden they're 100 AD, they have to be, oh yeah, well, Paul thought Jesus was God right when he started writing about 50 AD but but he was an innovator well he didn't he say he didn't say he was an innovator he said what I'm teaching you is, is found in the Old Testament and it's also the same gospel Peter James and John teach so he brings it right back to the event itself but the average American because of postmodernism wow I just read this new book whoa wow man it's I, she could. I, didn't know, I didn't even know Jesus was married and that his, his royal, Mary Magdalene had his daughter and, and uh, Mary Magdalene ran to France and they intermarried with the royal line in France. Wow, this is some cool stuff. It's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. If Dan Brown ever takes a debate on that issue uh, with an evangelical who's knowledgeable on the issues, he's, he's going to have a bad night. even if Jesus Seminar isn't there... But if you press the Jesus Seminar, you can push them in this direction—a direction, a direction uh, that they don't like to go. The Jesus Seminar, by the way, they're the guys that take votes to decide what what sayings Jesus actually said. So they came up with their their bo- book, the Five Gospels, where uh, if Jesus definitely said it, something it's in red ink. So there's very little red ink. I could have I could have paid for all the red ink in, in, in that I could afford it on my teacher's salary. Uh, there's so little red ink there. See, with liberal New Testament studies, and these are guys that do liberal New Testament studies, okay? And by the way, New Testament scholars, they're like people, okay? They're almost like people, okay? Most people don't believe in Jesus. Most New Testament scholars don't believe in Jesus. For some reason, they make their living on the New Testament and they study it in the original languages and all, but you got to view them like most people. However, especially with European cutting-edge New Testament scholarship is moving closer and closer in the direction of Bible-believing Christians. So that um, you got not only Larry Hurtado, University of Edinburgh, you have N.T. Wright out of Great Britain. He wrote a 650-page book, um, The Resurrection of the Son of God, where it's a 600-page argument. He's a New Testament scholar. He starts out with the liberal biases because that's what he's been trained to do. And he ends up arguing, assuming everything in the New Testament is false until proven true, which is a, a bias against the New Testament that you don't find against any other book. He starts there, but he ends up building a case that comes over to a 650-page argument that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, did in fact bodily rise from the dead. And these are two 2 cutting-edge books. And N.T. Wright, uh, he's got a book, The Meaning of Jesus, We debated Marcus Borg, probably the world's most famous liberal scholar, called The Meaning of Jesus and there you get the leading conservative scholar and the leading liberal scholar but whatever the case in liberal New Testament studies, even if, even if, if you as an evangelical decided to get a PhD in New Testament studies you, even if you were taught by evangelicals they would probably, without even realizing it, teach you that you need to have an anti-supernaturalistic bias In in other words, New Testament studies assumes miracles are impossible. If miracles are impossible, then the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, cannot be the true Jesus of history. So the New Testament must have perverted the true Jesus of history. And so they end up coming up with all these principles, multiple attestation, uh, the principle of uh, discontinuity. They come up with all these weird principles that make no sense at all, stack the deck against the Bible, and to consider every passage in the New Testament false until proven true, and yet in the end you still end up—if you—if you go where the evidence leads—you still end up with a Jesus that looks almost identical to the true Jesus of the Bible, which makes me question why we—why should we have this anti-supernaturalistic bias? By the way, uh, bias against miracles goes back to modernism. Most philosophers have rejected modernism. Now postmodernism, anything goes. So why how the Jesus Seminar, they think they're cutting edge? They're they're just the last of the New Testament scholars to let go of their modernistic bias against miracle. And so basically what I want to do is just spend the the remainder of the time is look at, at that page, just some of the evidences for Jesus' resurrection and some of the evidences of Jesus' deity. The revolution that is going on right now, the Jesus seminar is the exception to it. The revolution that is going on in New Testament uh, scholarly circles it's the fact that we realize that whenever you try to find the true Jesus of history and you take Jesus out of his Jewish culture you end up creating a Jesus in your own image so if you're a neo-orthodox existential theologian lo and behold Jesus becomes a neo-orthodox existential theologian okay if you're a communist Jesus becomes a commie. So basically you end up with all these liberal scholars and they each have a different Jesus and it's a Jesus created in their image and it's obviously not the true Jesus. So what scholars realized, what they had to do is we can find no Jesus, no historical Jesus unless we put Jesus back in his, into his, his, his Jewish culture. When they put him back in his Jewish culture things started to make sense and all of a sudden the Jesus of history started looking more and more like the true Jesus of the Bible. I'm going to list out the, the Shroud of Turin has a question mark at the bottom there for evidence for Jesus' resurrection, I have 12 points. The Shroud of Turin, I believe it's authentic. One of my old professors, Gary Habermas from Liberty University wrote two books on the Shroud of Turin. I believe you can make a case that the Shroud of Turin is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth. It's impossible to reproduce, nobody has reproduced it to this point all the different features in it even with modern technology even with the carbon-14 dating we now know that they dated not not a patch but material that was woven into the shroud they did not date the shroud textile experts have examined it and in fact they came out with that just what two years ago the only reason why I put a question mark there it takes longer to make a case for the authenticity of the shroud it's in than it does to make a case for Christ's resurrection. So when I'm arguing for the resurrection, I don't use the shroud of Turin. If I'm arguing for the shroud of Turin, that's going to take me, you know, five times the time than, than to argue for the resurrection. But if, if you if you looked into uh, either Gary R Habermas and his his books on the shroud, or um, Ian Wilson's. Ian Wilson was a skeptic. I mean, he, he questioned God's existence. Was a British historian and journalist. He investigated the shroud of Turin. Now he's a Roman Catholic. And, you know, I wish you were a Baptist, but, you know, you can't have everything. So we're going to look at some of these evidences. Uh, Out of these 11 evidences, in one form or another, almost every New Testament scholar acknowledges them. Gary Habermas, professional Liberty University, he's read uh, the work of over 1,500 leading, over 1,500 works by leading New Testament scholars on their views of the resurrection. he's basically uh, categorized everything and it's going it's to come out in print. But he's the only guy on the planet that authoritatively can tell you where New Testament scholars. For, for instance, on the empty tomb, 72% of New Testament scholars believe the tomb was empty. 72%. Uh, you'll get a higher percentage for everything else on this list with the exception of the Shroud of Turin. Scholars acknowledge that the Apostles would not have made up the story about James, the half-brother of Jesus bad public relations to make your own brother mocking you and rejecting your messiahship so they say okay that's true that he was a mocker of Jesus but all of a sudden in Acts chapter 1 he shows up as one of the leaders of the church on the just 40 days after Jesus' uh, crucifixion what happened there to explain how James could go from a mocker of his brother to being one of the leaders in his brother's church many scholars would argue you take the resurrection out, because Paul says, he's quoting an ancient creed, 1 Corinthians 153 8 you might want to write that down. It's an ancient creed that Paul quotes. I have an appendix on that in my uh, No Other Gods book that explains why most scholars date the creed, 1 Corinthians 153 3-8, why most scholars date it to between 33 and 37 A.D., when it was put together. And it was an ancient creed or hymn that was recited or sung in the early church. problem for the Jesus Seminar and Dan Brown is it lists, it gives a summary list of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Even Paul says, and he also appeared, he probably adds to the creed, and he also appeared to me as the one untimely born because it was after the ascension. All the other appearances are before the ascension. But he mentions Cephas, who is Peter, and James the half-brother of Jesus, which would explain why James's life was changed. Incredible. Gary Habermas could just, just take that one creed alone and and blows people away in debates. He debated Anthony Flew, who used to be the world's leading uh, agnostic philosopher, um, but now he believes that some type of God exists. He still won't accept the resurrection, but Habermas blew him away in two, two separate debates. And he, at one time he was considered the world's leading uh, living philosopher. Paul's changed life. He went from a, the, the leading persecutor of the church, accepted as, as fact by nearly all New Testament scholars today, went from being the leading persecutor in the church to the leading missionary, leading theologian of the church. How do you explain that? You take the Damascus road experience away. Christ's appearance to him on, a, on the road to Damascus, no way to explain it. How could Peter go from denying Jesus three times? But almost all New Testament scholars say, yeah, Peter denied Jesus three times. Why? Because that's ho- horrible public relations. This guy's going to be one of your biggest leaders in the early church, and you're going to say, yeah, you know, follow us, and... Uh, I blew it. The biggest night of my life. I lost my courage. I denied Jesus three times. I mean, that's horrible public relations. It's like I'm going to risk my life and follow you guys. You guys were hiding under beds when 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 your rabbi was being crucified, and we're going to we're going to risk our lives and follow you. It's ho- horrible public relations. When I debated, uh, does the Christian God exist at Princeton, against uh, Elliot Ratzman, the atheist group. Flew me out there, flew me and my wife out there to take the debate. I'm from New Jersey, so I couldn't turn it down, and uh, got to visit with my relatives and all. But he said two things during the debate, his two biggest points. He said, "Oh, I, I read this guy was working on his PhD in religion from Princeton, Ivy League school, and he said oh, I read the Gospels to prepare for this debate, and what I found is that they nothing but a bunch of fabrications, nothing but a bunch of lies." A few minutes later, he said, um, "Why should I follow the apostles?" you read the gospels and you find out they're nothing but a bunch of bungling idiots and so I got up after he got done talking I said you hear what Elliot is saying? he's saying the apostles made these stories up, they're trying to start a new religious movement they made these stories up, nothing but a bunch of lies but they portray themselves as a bunch of bungling idiots that doesn't make sense why would you portray yourself that way unless you were telling the truth the same passages the same stories, if you will, that contain the Christ's death and resurrection also contain the apostles fleeing. And you just can't throw, throw this stuff out. There's no reason why they would tell these stories unless they were true. So Paul's changed life, Peter's changed life, the empty tomb. Listen, most New Testament scholars acknowledge if, if, if Jesus' corpse was rotting in the tomb, that all the Jews had to do was present the rotting corpse of Christ paraded through the streets of Jerusalem and Christianity would be crushed at its earliest stage but the fact of the matter is we're here today (laughs) thousands of miles away two thousand years later and we gather in his name Gentiles gathering in the name of some guy who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah Uh, that would not happen if the rotting corpse of Christ was marched through the streets of Jerusalem, and the Jewish religious leaders, they had the money, they had the power, they could find the tomb, so therefore the tomb uh, was empty. Women were the first witnesses. Most New Testament scholars acknowledge this. You realize this was at a time when, which was so chauvinistic that a woman's testimony did not hold any weight in the court of law. So if you're going to make up a story, you're not going to have your first witnesses be, um what's the word I'm looking for, irrelevant. And, and when you have the ladies telling Peter and John, the leaders of the early church, about this, and they say, oh, you're just, you're just telling women's tales. No, you're just, no, this and And then the apostles, they get proven false. The ladies were right. It makes the leaders of the early church look really, really bad. There's no reason for them to fabricate that unless women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the risen Christ that Jesus was buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb? you realize most New Testament scholars acknowledge that as true? Two reasons for it. Because the the apostles said he was on the Sanhedrin. That'd be like saying the guy was a United States senator today. Only 100 senators and all. He only had 70 members on the Sanhedrin. So the apostles didn't make up the name because then people could say, oh, they're just telling stories. There's no such guy as Joseph Arimathea. He didn't exist and he wasn't on the Sanhedrin. So New Testament scholars say, okay, so he did exist and he was on the Sanhedrin, but maybe he didn't uh, allow Jesus' body to be buried in, in his tomb. Well then, well then, you just admit it. He's a famous guy on the Sanhedrin. If he didn't allow his tomb to be used, then any time the apostles preached the resurrection, you could go to him. He's a public figure. Was Jesus or was Jesus not buried in your tomb? And so most scholars acknowledge, okay. He was buried in Joseph Arimathea. So so not only was the tomb empty, it was a famous tomb of a famous person. Uh, That the apostles died martyrs' deaths. Nobody denies this. No no leading New Testament scholar, no leading historian denies this. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. These guys are sincere enough to die for their beliefs. I've had guys in debates tell me, philosophy professors, they think they're real smart and tell me, well, Muslims are sincere enough to die for their faith. Yeah, what's your point? You know, they, they, they can't see the difference there. But it's a big difference. When a Muslim is sincere enough to die for his faith, all that means is he believes Muhammad was a prophet. So what? I disagree. With the Apostles it's different though. The Apostles were sincere enough to die for faith, that means they sincerely believed they saw Jesus alive after his death. Now I can think of lots of ways of explaining explaining away a Muslim's belief in Muhammad as a prophet. Many people deceive others into thinking they're a prophet, and they're not. But it's a lot more difficult when you're trying to explain how the apostles could be sincere enough to die for their belief that they saw Jesus alive after his death. Every attempt to come up with an alternative, naturalistic theory, the liberal scholars refuted their own theories. And so there is is no real alternative theory now. Even the hallucination theory, that the apostles were hallucinating, over 500 people at one time saw Jesus, according to the ancient creed, 1 Corinthians 15:3 to 8 And Paul's not a liar. Over 500 people saw him at one time. Hallucinations occur inside somebody's mind. No two people share the same hallucination. Jesus appeared to groups, not only to individuals, but to groups. And so nobody even holds. Anytime somebody hints at the hallucination theory. You know, Marcus Borg for the Jesus Seminar? I was going to really nail him on this. He calls Jesus' post-resurrection appearances apparitions. You say, why well, are you calling them hallucinations? No, they're apparitions. So he's basically saying Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead, but there was some objective, real vision of him that groups of people had. So Gary Habermas, I was talking to him when he came up to Seattle last year. He said, basically, Marcus Borg, as far left as a New Testament scholar can get. And he acknowledges that Jesus probably rose spiritually. He doesn't like to state it that way, but that's pretty pretty much what he's claiming. In in fact, over 70% of New Testament scholars believe that Jesus rose in some way, shape, or form. Not all of them are open to the bodily resurrection, but they acknowledge that he rose in some way when Marcus Borg debated William Lane Craig William Lane Craig said are you open to the possibility that Jesus is still alive today? and Marcus Borg uh, basically stated, said, yeah there's room in, in my belief system for that And this is like as far left as you get among scholars the apostles believed they saw Jesus alive numerous times virtually no New Testament scholars deny that anymore the resurrection was preached in Jerusalem Based on the sermons of Acts chapters 1 through 12, most New Testament scholars acknowledge them as early uh, sermons because the theology was so primitive. It wasn't developed. And so they acknowledge that, yeah, those sermons were preached. Well, the resurrection is the main, is, the, is the, the key point in them. So you got the resurrection preached right in Jerusalem. Traditional Jews, they worshiped on Saturday because God created the universe in six days and rested on the seventh day. Why in the world would they change their worship day from Saturday to Sunday? They had to believe, you know, God was the one who told them to worship on Saturday. So they had to believe, God is telling us to now worship on Sunday. Well, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday and most, if not all of his post-resurrection appearances were on Sundays. They got the hint. You take the resurrection away, there's no explanation for it. Something had to occur that was bigger in their mind as big as or bigger than the creation event the church grew rapidly in Jerusalem as the resurrection is preached and that's the easiest place on the planet earth to refute the resurrection see the, the, the reason why the Jesus Seminar cannot re- they fail so miserably at refuting the resurrection and the uh, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code he can't disprove the resurrection because it's too late it's too late you want to disprove the resurrection you had your chance in the 30s AD and it didn't happen and you think people are going to be throwing the lions just based on some fairy tale they're going to want to see the evidence so basically for for these reasons uh, you can make a strong case as does N.T. Wright that Jesus bodily rose from the dead see we need to help our students see through the eyes of the, the lies of the Da Vinci Code and see through the the lies of the Jesus seminar evidence for Christ's deity let me just mention this in passing most New Testament scholars won't even look at number 10 all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled it's incredible the amount of prophecies that he fulfilled that's a whole lecture in itself but Jesus called God Abba remember they put put Jesus back into his uh, Jewish culture And he's basically, in a a more respectful way, but he's basically calling God the Father Daddy. He's saying God the Father is my Daddy. He's closer. He's my Father in a unique way that he's not, and he's not that close to anybody else. They try to find any 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 Jewish religious leader who had the the courage to do that, and nobody. So he's going around calling his Father uh, Daddy, Abba which is why the Jews pick up stones and stone them. John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. His truly, truly statements. He would say, you have heard, you have heard what the rabbis said, their oral commentary on the scriptures, but you could throw that in the trash can. You have heard them say this, but truly, truly I say to you, this is why they said that Jesus taught with authority that they had never heard of before. See, people, the rabbis back then didn't want to, it's like, well, what does this passage mean? well Hillel says this or Shammai says that they're talking about rabbis who've been dead over a hundred years because nobody wanted to interpret God's word for themselves so they take some rabbi who's held in high esteem Jesus said forget all the rabbis forget the oral tradition of the Pharisees but truly truly I say to you the truly truly statement what he's basically saying is my interpretation of the word holds as much authority as the word itself he's acting as if he's the author of the book they tried to find, you realize, in ancient Jewish literature, they tried the Jewish religious literature, they tried to find something that even comes close to Jesus' truly, truly statements. And they only found one statement. And it's in the Old Testament over and over again. Anybody want to guess what it is? A way to to, to begin your statement to show us got the authority of the Lord, is thus saith the Lord. The only difference between thus the Old Testament prophets, thus saith the Lord, and Jesus' truly, truly statements, the Old Testament prophets were saying, Thus saith not me, but the Lord. When Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, Thus saith me, the Lord. Just in his truly, truly statements along, see, the problem, we, we look at, you know. Every, we live in a day and age where everybody in their mother's brother thinks he's God. So we read that into the New Testament and we say, "Gee, Jesus' claims to be God aren't very clear. Put Jesus in the Jewish in the Jewish setting, and every time he opens his mouth, he's claiming to be God. Jesus believed the person's eternal destiny rested on him. He basically say these other rabbis, you know, they say, well, you should agree with me. This and that. But, but. Jesus say, you don't build your house on my teachings. You're through. He believed he would usher in the kingdom of God. He believed he could perform miracles. He believed he had authority over the temple. The temple was the greatest incarnation of God. And Jesus said, "One greater than the temple is here, and that He had authority to cleanse the temple. He claimed to be able to forgive sin. He tells a guy, a total stranger, lower down through the roof, he i 'I'll oh, just bypass the the temple system and the temple sacrifices. Your sins are forgiven. I'll, I've got the authority to forgive your sins.' Immediately, the Jewish religious leaders realized this guy's claiming this guy thinks he's God. He's claiming to be able to forgive sins. If we put Jesus back in his Jewish context. I mean he called himself the Savior. Read the Old Testament. Only Yahweh is Savior. Jesus uh, called himself the bridegroom of Israel. Read the Old Testament. Yahweh is Israel's groom. So basically by putting Jesus back into into his Jewish culture, it becomes amply clear that he claimed to be God. Well, how did he prove that claim to be true? By rising from the dead. Many convincing proofs, says, uh, says Luke. So, you know, the evidence is going on. I mean, he even gets to the point where now you got New Testament scholars said, yeah, Jesus thought he was God because God started the, the old Israel and now he, he thinks he's starting the new Israel. And he asked the New Testament scholars, what are you talking about? He said, well, he chose 12 apostles and, and uh, 70 uh, uh, disciples you're scratching your head what he's basically saying is 12 apostles the equivalent of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel and 70 disciples equivalent to the 70 elders from from Moses' time and stuff like that so Jesus is saying I'm I'm going to start a new spiritual Israel well God started the first Israel and so in that in itself they see Jesus claiming authority that in, in, in the Jewish mindset is due only of God we only have about three minutes left. I don't know. Somebody walks in the door. Maybe we could squeeze five minutes out. But does anybody have any any questions? I'm supposed to leave time for questions. So make sure you note that in the evaluation. He left time. Don't say how little time, but he left time for questions. Why is this three something? Oh uh, yeah. Well, it's it's kind of one of those deals where. Uh, I take what they give me, and if they give me two talks, I'll try to squeeze in as much as I can. But if you go to my website, you can get numerous lectures on that. There's a 32 lecture course in, uh, called Advanced Apologetics, where I spend a, a few lectures in there that deal with it. My my book addresses the subject in a few chapters, but uh, my next book will will deal with uh, the whole book will be devoted to this and and more. I mean the evidences go. Even beyond this, I mean, we have a really strong case that Acts had to be written 61 A.D. or, or before 62 A.D. Because it doesn't mention James' death, yet he plays a big role, does and he died 62 A.D. doesn't mention the deaths of Peter and Paul, 67 A.D., they have a big role in Acts. doesn't mention the destruction of the temple, 70 A.D., or the war with the Romans, 66 A.D., uh, none, of, none of that is mentioned so he just cuts it off right at 61 AD with Paul in Rome the best explanation is that's they wrote right up to the present day 61 AD well acts is the sequel to Luke Luke was written earlier than it and and, and so that so that predates it so, i mean and it's look it just you just look at Paul Paul's not trying to record a gospel the historical narrative of Jesus uh, but just list the things that Paul mentions in passing that Jesus was crucified that he was the Jewish Messiah that he was God and you get the same picture from Paul's writings which date back to 49, 50 A.D. from about 49 to about 64 to 67 A.D. You get the same pictures as the Gospels yet Paul claims he was preaching the same Gospels as the other ones before him So, uh, but yeah, it, it's one of those deals that's why I gave the business card the free books up there uh, I think in the... Uh, The Big Argument book, Michael Lacona, I never met him, but he also was a a student of Gary Habermas, probably the world's leading expert on the historical evidence for Christ's resurrection. He co-authored a book with with Habermas, but he's he's got a chapter right before mine, chapter 23 in the Big Argument book on historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. So basically, I'm, I'm hoping to point people in the right direction so they can do further research. Over 800 lectures, you can look at a lot of that stuff, and maybe that'll help as well. so Okay, he, yeah. What was the name of the lyrics brother's book again? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he chose that title for a reason. The Lord Jesus Christ was one of the earliest titles of Jesus. You find the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the title that, that Paul gives him in his book of Galatians. Christ means he's the Messiah, and the Lord means he's Yahweh. In that context, call him the Lord Jesus Christ, and Larry Hurtado says the Lord Jesus Christ. That title goes right back to the early 30s A.D. Any other questions? Okay. God bless you. Thanks for your patience. Um, just, uh, one commercial for tomorrow 8 A.M. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think the speakers will be here, and that's, that might be it. But uh, okay. God bless you. Be gentle on the evaluation.